Kirby. Peter Schweitzer takes on corruption in Washington. Joe Piscopo salutes the chairman of the board. And Jake Hoot, winner of the voice reform. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! Oh, thank you very much. What a great crowd we've got here in our theater. And if you've never been here, what are you waiting on? I'm giving you my personal invitation. You know what makes it really exciting? The tickets are free. How about that? Let me tell you something. You don't go anywhere in Nashville anymore and get a free ticket to anything, except right here. And I'm gonna tell you, it's worth every bit you pay for it, okay? Our audience is somehow saying, what, did, did we miss something? All right, hey, when watching coverage of recent primaries, I noticed every single talking head had something in common. They were speaking with great authority and harumph about a game they've never actually played. Now, I'm not a Democrat, and I couldn't vote for any of the ones who are running for president right now because I just can't vote for someone who thinks it's okay to intentionally end a baby's life or... or who believes in open borders, higher taxes, more government control of our lives, or who won't stand with Israel as our ally. Those are important things to me. They matter. But I have a lot more respect for the Democrats who are running for president than the know-it-alls in the media who glibly tell us which candidates can't win or which ones should drop out of the race or they even blatantly say the candidate doesn't really want to run to win, but just running to get more exposure because it will help them land a book or a TV deal. I've run twice for president, and the only thing that's harder than starting a campaign is making the decision to end it. Both times I ran, I walked away from every source of income I had. I risk everything, including my house, my retirement fund, and my savings. I spent more than a year living on little or no sleep, eating most of my meals in my lap in a car or plane, and living in a different hotel room every night for six or seven nights a week. I can't tell you how many times I heard some expert on TV or radio say that I couldn't win. In addition to that, I was accused of everything, of bad behavior to felonies by political enemies or some anonymous internet troll. And I had to beg every friend, every stranger I could for money to run the campaign. I hired staff who came aboard knowing that they were either going to the White House or the Poor House. But they came because they believed in me and I believed in them. And even when we could have kept going, once the media told the world we couldn't win, the money stopped. And without it, we couldn't pay the team, buy the airline tickets or hotel rooms, much less by TV ads. And after going 100 miles an hour for a solid year, one day you walk in front of the cameras and you announce that it's over. And it's like a dead stop. You look into the tearful faces of the people on your team and the supporters 
and you feel like you've let them down. But in the back of the room, the media mob smirks and opines that you never thought you could win anyway. And they are idiots. Yeah. Let me tell you why. No one puts himself or herself through this just for the civic exercise. It's hard work, and you aren't paid one dime to be a candidate. What you do have is the satisfaction that you had the guts to do what your critics didn't and never will. You put your name on the ballot, and they won't. The media will pretend they know what it's all about. Trust me, they don't. They've never gone into the arena They've never fought the battles and came off the field bloody, muddy, and utterly exhausted and broke. So this may surprise you. To all the Democrat candidates who have already left the field or to those who are still in it, I'm gonna give you something the media won't. I give you my profound respect for having the courage to run, to give your all, to take the risk, the ridicule, and the wrath of those who watch the game but have never played it. Yeah, our system can be ugly, vicious, and tough to stomach, but it works as long as people are willing to leave it all behind on the field, whether in victory or defeat. And to my fellow warriors on the Democrat side, whether you won or lost, I realize what you had to do. The critics never will. They will continue to smugly ridicule you. But no matter how much I disagree with your politics, you have my respect. You join a small club of men and women who could have taken an easy way, but chose a hard way. And to you I say, Godspeed and best wishes. My first guest caused a political earthquake with his last book called Clinton Cash. He's got a brand new book and it's called Profiles in Corruption. It is rocking Washington, D.C. because it exposes even more of the shady financial dealings involving America's progressive elites. We welcome investigative journalist and the president of the Government Accountability Institute, Mr. Peter Schweizer. Peter, so happy to have you here. Thanks, Governor. It's great to be here. Tell me, when you're talking about profiles in corruption, who should we be looking at? Well, I think you should be looking at any political figure because I believe corruption is something that anyone's capable of. But you have to really focus, I think, on political figures who want more political power. Hmm. And the reason I focused in this book on progressives is they're unique, Governor. I mean, unlike moderates or conservatives or classical liberals, they're saying we need a whole lot more power to solve the problems of this country, which, of course, is questionable whether they would. Yeah. Uh, and that makes them unique. So they need special attention because they're asking for so much more power. You have talked about that there's not just Hunter and Joe Biden. Uh, and all of the Burisma, oil and gas things in the Ukraine. But there are other Bidens that are a part of the, uh, uh, the family business, if we will. Explain that. Yeah, I call them the Biden Five. It's a little bit like the Jackson Five, but it's more uh, uh, corruption-oriented. I don't think Joe's got the moves of Michael, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I think you're right about that. Um, but really, it's endemic in the way the Bidens operate. Uh, you have Hunter Biden, who's done these deals in China and Ukraine and Kazakhstan. You've got his brother James. I mean, consider this. Uh, a friend of the family goes to the vice president's office in November of 2010 
2010, when Joe Biden is vice president, he set up a new construction company. Three weeks after that meeting in the White House, he adds James Biden, Joe Biden's brother, as executive vice president of the construction company. Now here's the problem. James doesn't have any experience in construction, in major project management, none of that. Six months after that, this new construction company with a vice president's brother as the executive vice president lands a contract worth $1.5 billion. Billion. Billion dollars to build 100,000 homes in Iraq, funded by taxpayers, funded by the Obama-Biden administration. So we paid for it. Yes. But the brother of the vice president is making some serious bank because he happens to be related to the vice president, not because he's a construction genius with that's a long a, history. That's exactly right. And you see this with the Bidens and over and over again. You have a situation with uh, his daughter uh, is married to an individual who started a business called Startup Health that was literally launched in the Oval Office. Joe Biden brought executives from the company in to be, meet Barack Obama. They get special placement at this federal conference. And then over the next five years, Joe Biden as vice president is going and briefing the investors and partners of this company in private about health care policy in the Obama administration. If the Trumps did this, there would be outrage. I would be outraged. <laughs> but the yeah. Bidens did it in its standard operating practice. Well, that leads to the, the obvious question. I've not heard this stuff in the mainstream media. I don't think it's on CNN or ABC, NBC, MSNBC. Why not? The situation is this. Um, there are some good reporters there, but I think the management there essentially does not want to go after certain people. It's outright political bias. But the added problem, Governor, is resources. I mean, this book took 18 months of research. There's more than 1,100 footnotes. There's no anonymous sources. It's very hard work to dig up this stuff. I want to move to Elizabeth Warren because, yeah. uh, again, I'd never heard this stuff on media. Um, but there's some issues regarding Elizabeth Warren's son-in-law. Tell me about that. Yeah, so Elizabeth Warren has corruption issues herself, her daughter, there's questions about some of the business work that she's done, but her son-in-law, Sushil Tiagi, he's from India, very bright guy, met Elizabeth Warren's daughter at the Wharton Business School, has a whole host of businesses based in India and elsewhere, and we know that Elizabeth Warren's familiar with them because we actually have corporate records where she signed as a witness for some of the huh. corporate documents. He set up a company called Tricolor Films, that said on its website, recently taken down, that their business model, they were going to uh, make films funded by foreign governments. What we discovered, and it's all laid out in the book, is one of those films was actually a film financed by the government of Iran. Uh, and he actually, in the film credits, the son-in-law of Elizabeth Warren, thanks the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Air Force in the film. In the film for their contribution. I don't know what their contribution was, but it was obviously something. And this is, of course, very troubling. If we're going to be worried about politicians having stock in, you know, General Electric or yeah. companies, we need to be concerned about commercial ties their family has with foreign governments. Well, Elizabeth Warren has been so critical about any corporate ties. Corporations shouldn't make money. Yeah. She's made a lot of money she and has. a lot of money on corporate boards and a lot of money speaking to big corporations. I don't hear her apologizing no. for that. No, she doesn't. I mean, she played the oldest game in the book, uh, Governor. She was hired by Congress in 1993 through 1996 to help write bankruptcy laws in the United States. And she says in legal documents that some of those were incorporated into law in 1994. Well, what did she do? She went to corporations and said, you want to hire me to help you navigate the laws that I wrote. 
Bernie Sanders is also a person, it's, it's been kind of interesting, he's a socialist, believes that we basically ought to give 90% of our income to the government. Yeah. He's done pretty well for a guy that was living off a senatorial salary. <laughs> <laughs> he has, it's funny, you know, he used to, for about 38 years, he would always say our national politics shouldn't be dominated by billionaires and millionaires. Well, about three and a half years ago, he dropped the millionaire part because he became one. He is one. And part of the reason <laughs> he became one is he figured out this secret, one of the dirty secrets, you know it, because you know Washington well, which is if you're running a campaign, you can hire a media buyer to do your media buys, to buy television and radio ads, and that media buyer is entitled to a commission, yeah, 15% commission, and you don't have to disclose it anywhere. Well, Bernie figured this out, and you know what he did? He made his wife the media buyer. So she got the commission off of media buys for his congressional campaigns. And by the way, she had no background in media buying. She'd never done it before. What makes you personally most nervous looking at our government and as you talk about in the book, profiles in corruption? Uh, what makes me most nervous is that there are unfortunately people on both sides of the aisle that like the, that way of doing business. Mm. They don't want to address it, they don't want to deal with it. I think it's one of the reasons why Donald Trump is such a disruptive force. Yeah. You know, he's called the Bidens out on this and it makes a lot of people nervous. So my concern is there's going to be complacency about this in the Capitol. Everybody outside of the Beltway is outraged and we need to let our elected officials know we care about this stuff. Yeah. This matters because it affects the, the type of government we're going to get. Peter, great to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Peter Schweizer. by the way, before you vote this year, you really should read this book. It's called Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite. It's available now on Amazon, all major booksellers. And you can also find the book and much more at peterschweizer.com. Follow him on Twitter at Peter Schweizer and on Facebook at Peter Schweizer Author. And if you enjoy news stories that seem just a little too crazy to be true, but actually are true, why don't you join me for In Case You Missed It, It'll be after the show on Huckabee.tv. We're going to tackle why lady steaks shouldn't be smaller and how an Indian swami is claiming cow dung is the real cure for the coronavirus. Now, don't miss it when the bull butter flies on In Case You Missed It at Huckabee.tv. Keith Bilbrey, how about giving us some profiles in great guests that are coming up on the show tonight? Tonight, the wonderfully talented Joe Piscopo, then political analyst Gianno Caldwell, and author Jonathan Kahn. Later, the winner of The Voice, Jay Coop. That's all coming up on Huckabee. Our next guest is a former Saturday Night Live performer known for his spot-on Frank Sinatra impersonation. Frank himself referred to our guest as the vice chairman of the board. He now hosts a political radio show out of New York City in his own unique style. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Joe Piscopo. Spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray 
Right through the very heart of it New York, New York I wanna wake up Down here in Nashville, Tennessee So I can wave hi to the camera and say Hi Mom, I'm on with Governor Huckabee My New Jersey blue I'm melting away I'll make a brand new start of it In old New York If we can make it down We're gonna make it And this guy has no idea who I am Hi, how are you? Good to see you It's up to you New York, New York Here we go, baby, come on now To find that I'm number one, top of that list, king of that hill, a number one, the Piscopo, what a pleasure it is to have you here. Thank I, you, sir. Such a long-time admirer, Governor. Great to be here. This is great. Where Thank am you. I? In uh, <laughs> Nashville, Tennessee, Nashville, baby. Tennessee. Look what do you think of our digs? I gotta tell you, you guys, you guys, this is the best. I'm a Jersey guy, a Jersey guy. So I get off to the airport. I get off the plane at the airport. I'm in there, and, uh, and I'm in the, the elevator with the driver guy, and there's somebody with one of those foot things because uh, she broke the foot. Uh -huh. And the driver goes, 
Well, I see you hurt your foot, huh? She goes, uh, uh, yes, I did, but it should be okay. Well, good thing you don't have crutches. I said, how come they're so nice down here? I said, oh, my God. No, it was great. If, that, you know, if it was Jersey, you would say, you know, I'm going to kick you with this boot in my foot if you don't keep you quiet. It's so, it's so refreshing. Room service at the hotel. Could you just make it this way? Yes, yeah. sir, whatever you'd like, sir, you know? At Jersey, I get... What, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you are definitely in the South, and, and people are hospitable in yes, the South. Yes, it's, it's wonderful, you know. Just the way we were raised. You know, yeah. I got to tell you, too, if I may, sir. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I'm, I'm through and through Jersey, you know, and we broadcast from New York on AM 970, uh, you know, uh, Salem Media's flagship station. They yeah. were kind enough to... Uh, come on tomorrow and have been on before. We always appreciate that. But I'm Jersey through and through. My family is there. My kids are there. My, my mother is there. God bless her. She's doing she's so great and everything. But it is, I went, I played Carrollton, Georgia. You know, because I only play the hot spots. Yeah. Corner. So right. I, uh, <laughs> don't. Anyone here from Carrollton? I just yeah, want to check. Don't. <laughs> the big time, you know. No, I got to tell you, one of the greatest places I ever played, the Townsend Performing Arts yeah. Center. I go out there, man. I had the band, you know, we all the, yeah. had all the cats in the band, you know, and we started doing the Frank Sinatra stuff, having some fun, and we had the best. I stepped on that stage, I said, you know what? This is the heart of America. I said to the yeah. audience, as I say to this audience in Nashville, the heart and soul of America. It is. You know, now, yeah. we talked about that. Absolutely it is. It's so, so don't, ever, don't ever change, because it's nice to live it here down south. Now. I want to ask you how you got on the cast of Saturday Night Live. Oh, I mean, God. because thousands of people try out an audition. Oh, I know. There's it, only a handful of people that ever make it to the cast. How did you get there? Well, it was an anomaly because I was working. I was at the Improvisation Comedy Club in Hell's Kitchen, you know, yeah. back in, I think Woodrow Wilson was president. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it was the, please, it was so long ago. And I was with, Larry David was there. Jerry Seinfeld was coming up. Huh. Uh, Gilbert Goffey and I we were very close friends. I tell you, it was a whole litany, uh, and Robin Williams started Started to break. Mm. So I was doing the clubs thinking I would just be a working actor. That's all I ever wanted to yeah. do was just work. But then they, I got the call and they, said, and, they, and they said, Joe, we'd like you to audition for Saturday Night Live. And I did. And they said, okay, you got the job. And that's where I met Eddie Murphy, who was 19 years old Whoa, at the time. 19? I know. I, he was from Whoa. Long Island. Yeah, all the <laughs> comics. It's, it, I, if, if we had the time, I'll tell you, the comics thing, it was a great thing back then in New York. Yeah. Governor, it was like, we were from the West Side. They then you had the Upper East Side. Then you had uh, Long Island. And we were all like, it could have been different states where we were from, but we all joined together. And then when I got to meet Eddie on Saturday Night Live, it was just great. And, but it was scary because we had to replace the greatest cast in television history at one time. Gilda Radner, Danny Aykroyd, John Belushi, Billy Murray. Oh! Yeah. Chevy Chase. Yeah. And we bombed terribly. Thank you very much. <laughs> we, people forget, right? People forget, man. They forget. We, you know, and New York is nothing for nothing. We'd be the new guys. You know, we'd be walking down the street after the show. You're the new guys from the new Saturday Night Live, right? I go, yeah, they go, you stink. Get off of there. You're ruining my television show. They would show. never have said that to you in Carrollton, Georgia, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> they would have said, uh, Joe, next week maybe you could just be a little better. <laughs> Bless his heart. Somebody, <laughs> I wouldn't have heard it in Carrollton, Georgia. They would have been a, so we, but I'll tell you what. The grace of God, we turned it around, and we had so much fun, and we just hit it and, and just had some fun. But comedy is different today. People are so afraid they'll offend someone, yeah. and they do offend yeah. people. Yeah. And even Seinfeld won't play campuses anymore. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the comics are just ready to throw up yeah. their hands and say, 
People won't let us be funny. What has happened to this country? I don't know. We're too politically correct. Everybody's got to relax. You know, everybody's got to relax. When I think of when I was next to the great Eddie Murphy and he would say, I'm doing, I'm doing, oh, I'm going to do a street version of Mr. Rogers. And I'm going like, <laughs> what? And then he goes, he goes, I'm going to do a street version of Mr. Rogers. I'm going like, uh, you can do that? And he goes, yeah. Then he, go, then he goes, oh, and this was my favorite. <laughs> I'm doing buckwheat. And I'm going, you know. <laughs> You know, Eddie, it, it could, could I, I may be wrong here, because yeah. I was older, you know, but it could come across racist. He goes, I'm doing it, man. And I'll tell you what, and if you saw Eddie in December on SNL, he went right back, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. That's where we got to be with comedy-wise. We just got to relax and be uh, stop being so politically correct. It's killing us. It's killing us. I couldn't agree more. They're making laws. They're passing laws now. And it's, it's a tragedy. But I'm glad guys like you are pushing back. I know that oh. we're seeing it from Ricky Gervais and others who are... Who was great. That was great. I like my name behind me, Governor. How Thank about you that? very much. This hey, you're a big deal here. The, the Governor told me, too. He, this is his joke. He said, <laughs> you know, if the show doesn't work out, he could always open a restaurant with that sign like that. I got that. the neon. It's there. That's Already the Governor's set. job. Stealing your material now, Governor. <laughs> Thank you. So it's great having you here. Hey, Keith, Joe and I are going to have a little fun with a band. Can we do so that? while we're we... over there getting set up, I want you to tell the audience how they can keep up with Joe Piscopo. You can find Joe on your radio dial in New York City on AM 970, The Answer. Or if you're not in New York, check out his podcast at JoePiscopo.us and follow Joe on Twitter at J-R-Z-Y Joe Piscopo. Coming up, Gianna Caldwell, New York Times best-selling novelist Jonathan Kahn, and later, winner of The Voice, Jay Coop, is on Huckabee. Author Charles Dickens once said, no one is useless in this world who lightens the burdens of another. And when you put your caring heart to work through Samaritan's Purse, you are lifting burdens, my friend, and you're doing it in the name of Christ. You help repair lives and you put life back together for the broken people who have suffered the wrath of hurricanes, war, poverty, and disease. Right now, your call and your financial gift will help Samaritan's Purse continue to perform this godly calling. 
across the globe as well as right here at home. Let me encourage you to call or visit the Samaritan's Purse website, and I hope you'll give a generous gift. As Jesus himself would say, love these neighbors as you love yourself. Well, the gains for African Americans under President Trump have many black voters rethinking unfulfilled promises and loyalties. My next guest has a new book that's perfectly timed. It's called Taken for Granted, How Conservatism Can Win Back the Americans That Liberalism Failed. Please welcome a colleague from Fox News, political analyst Gianno Cowell. Gianno, welcome. Thank you so much. Great having you here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, y'all. <laughs> You've got a lot of fans out yeah, here. I'm thankful. Thank y'all for watching. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I think they love when you mix it up with Richard Fowler. Oh, my God. Richard News is going to love the fact that he can post this clip on Instagram. I hope he will. <laughs> I want to talk about uh, your message yeah. is, is very, very timely, especially in this election year. President Trump is now uh, polling with percentages of 20% and mm -hmm. above in the African-American community. Some people say he might get 30 or 40% of the African-American vote. If he does, game over, he wins the election. Approval ratings at 30% and continue to go up, and we know why. Why? It's because this that. is a president that has provided solutions to the ills in which a lot of policies. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so let's be specific. But they like the word solutions. <laughs> but, and, you know, and that's an important point, solutions. Yeah. Let's be specific. Yeah. What has he done for black America that other politicians promised but never delivered? Well, we can talk about the lowest unemployment rate among African Americans on record. We can talk about the First Step Act, which is thousands of people. I love y'all! <laughs> <laughs> and that was very powerful. It was bipartisan. It was an important uh, reform yeah. in the criminal justice system. The First Step Act is a critical one because we're talking about thousands of people released from jail, 90% of them being African-American. We're talking about permanent funding for historically black colleges and universities. There's been a lot of policies that no politician, whether they be a Democrat or Republican, in my lifetime that have been passed and implemented by this president um, and has benefited the African-American community. And that's why I talk about that and taken for granted. President Trump, four years ago, made a statement, and a lot of people thought it was a crass statement, but it turned out to be pretty What do you blunt. have to lose? That's what he said. That's right. Vote for me. What do you have to lose? You've been voting for these other guys for all this time. Did that take root with a lot of people in the community? I, I, I'll, I'll put that, flip that on his head and say, what do you have to gain? And I just mm -hmm. mentioned <laughs> what we've had yeah. to gain. And, again, and this isn't something that's just been for African-Americans. Clearly, it's benefited um, those in manufacturing, those in the Appalachian region, who really needed the help as well. Um, the opioid crisis, which is another issue, because me, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, extremely poor, lights, gas, and water off at the same time. I'm addicted to crack cocaine. So that's an issue hmm. that's very, very close to my heart. And I'm thankful that this isn't a president who simply talks about the issues or says how bad it is, but this is someone who's providing solutions. And I think that moves the conversation forward, and I think it uplifts everyone. And I think that's the conversation we should be having as a country. The power of your story is that if you were just a raw statistic, you should still be living in the south side of Chicago, probably on drugs, and living in poverty. How come you got out and other people haven't? My faith in God. And let mm. me be very clear about that. Mm. Thank you. Be very clear. I'm so thankful. And you know what? I think one, and I talk about it in my book, Taken for Granted, there's an other overlooked part of faith, an active faith, one in which I think people need to realize, especially young folks, because I know y'all got it. 
<laughs> I've been here in Nashville for all of a day, and people are praying for me in their Uber. So, like, and that's a serious story. Like, that literally happened no today. No kidding. So y'all got it. But there's so many young folks in this country who don't understand that the, the power of God, the power of his favor, mm. unmerited favor, favor you don't deserve. Yeah. So it doesn't matter about the decisions you might have made that might have been negative. He still have open arms to bring you right in and, and treat you like it never happened before. So with that being the case, me growing up in the, in the church and having a pastor by the name of Bill Winston, if you know who he is, who, who taught. Yeah. Hey, I love it, <laughs> I love it. Who, who said, you're not a victim, you're not your, your past, no matter if you were born across the tracks or on the tracks, you will be successful, you will be victorious. Mm. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, mm. and he shall direct your path. Yeah. With that guidance, you shall move forward. So we're we, we, we gonna, we gonna counsel fear, <laughs> no more fear. 2 Timothy 1 and 7. There is a, a second part of the subtitle of the book that liberalism failed a lot Absolutely. of Americans. How did liberalism fail people, and more specifically in the African-American community? So if we look at this, it look back to the 60s, the single mother rate was about 25%. Now is it about 80%? Whoa. Yeah, yeah. 80%? 80%. 80 80%. Clear facts, you can go Google it, research it. Um, when you think about a lot of the, the abortion statistic, millions of babies aborted. So we don't have the kind of population in which we could have and really be able to flex that power. So when we're thinking about legitimate facts, figures, not just rhetoric, action-based solutions, conservatism is what saved me. I mean, I lost a lot of friends. I talked about recently how I was at a Hollywood party and Tiffany Haddish, I went up to shake her hand and she says to me, I know who you are. You're that Republican from Fox News. And she refused to shake my hand. Wow. And, you know, I'm a single guy. Follow me on Instagram, at Gianna Caldwell. <laughs> Slide in the DMs, we here. Uh, but <laughs> you, can, you can lose friends. But at the end of the day, though, are you doing it for a greater purpose? Mm. And that's why I'm doing this. And I'm thankful to be an individual who worked in politics since I was 14, found conservatism, and I found a better life. I'm proud you did, and I'm proud you wrote this book. Thank you. This is it right here. Taken for granted. It is available on Amazon or at GianoCowell.com. I hope you get this remarkable book. It is worth your read. Also, you can follow Giano on Twitter at GianoCowell. Hey, and don't miss his upcoming lecture at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library on February 27th. So if you live in the Southern California area, call the Reagan Library. Don't miss, because you heard him here tonight, and I think you'll realize. This young man's got something to say we all need to hear. Gianno Caldwell, great to have you. So much. But we're not going to take Keith Bilbrey for granted. No way. Because he's going to tell us what we have coming up on the show. Well, next, the best-selling author of The Oracle, Jonathan Kahn, and country music's rising star, Jay Coop. They're right here on tonight's Huckabee. Next week, Outrage in America with Dana Lack and Kevin and Sam Sorbo. Celebrate marriage, movies, and miracles in Hollywood. And welcome back to our show. Now, the son of a Holocaust refugee, my next guest grew up to be a best-selling author and a leading Messianic Jewish pastor. His latest New York Times best-selling book is called The Oracle. 
The Jubilee and Mysteries Unveiled. His books are always spellbinding and insightful works of importance and spiritual power. Would you please welcome to the show, Jonathan Kahn. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to have you here. Great. Anyone who has read your books, I'm sure, if they haven't already ordered it, they're going to, because uh, the first book I remember reading of yours was The Harbinger. Yes. I thought I would read a few pages, <laughs> and I could not stop. And everything you write is written not only with clarity and drama and power, mm. but you bring information out that, mm. that I think we've never heard before. Mm. Now, this one is about the Jubilean uh, oracle. What is, what is that about? Yeah. It is a mystery, really, that it's big. That So it includes Moses on one hand, uh, Mark Twain on the other, uh, uh, Prophet Daniel, Donald Trump, uh, we'll get to him, I know, okay. you know um, and all of that. And even, you know, the, the, really the secret of the end times, it's also the blueprint of our lives. It even has the rise of America. It is, it is you know, I'll say this, Mike. We're in a culture where the, the culture is trying to push away God and say, well, yeah. that, that, that's for the Bible. That, that's all stories. The oracle is saying, no, no, the, the God of the Bible is alive and well. The God of, he's alive and well and he's behind everything in the same way. Same way he moved in the Bible, he's moving, you know, he moved on kings, he moves on presidents. Our elections even are determined by it. Every, you know, it looks like things are out of control. It's not out of control, you know. So I'll, I'll just give you a little taste. Okay. And then yeah. um, Israel comes back in the world in right. 1948. On that day that Israel comes back, it's a Sabbath. They're opening up the scrolls all around the world. And what is the appointed scripture for May 14, 1948? From ancient times, appointed. It's the prophecy from, prophecy from Amos that says, on that day, I will resurrect the nation of Israel. Mm. on that day. So they're reading it while it's happening, while it's happening. Uh, I'll give you another example, and a kind of a kind of different thing there. And that is that, you know, in Moses, this Leviticus, there's there's the Jubilee. And this this the, this is also the mystery of the Jubilee. Yeah. God says that in the end times, I'm going to I'm going to give a jubilee for the Jewish people. I'm going to bring them back to the land. He says, "You shall return." Now, you shall return. In Hebrew, it's a, a one word, teshavu. Uh, but when you take that word, when God said, you shall return, it comes up to a number that indicates a year. The year it indicates is 1948, the year that Israel returned. I mean, who could do that? Only the God of the universe. It was all there for 3,000 years. I mean, most of us think of the Bible as telling us stuff that happened right. up to 2,000 years ago. Yes. You're saying that the message of the Bible yes is actually giving us insight into yes. what's happening. Because you said, yes. Moses, Mark Twain, Donald Trump. I said, Moses, I get. <laughs> I don't know if I truly understand that Mark Twain and Donald Trump were somewhere predicted All in right. the Bible. I'll give you, because you okay. said it. I wasn't going to get into Mark Twain. But I'll get into it. All right, <laughs> Moses says that in the last days, I'm going to God says he's going to gather the Jewish people back to the land. But he says, before that happens, a stranger will come from a faraway land. He'll come to the land when it's desolate. He will bear witness of the desolation of the land. Well, what happens in yep. the year 1867, Mark Twain, you know, cynic, comes huh. to the land. He has a notepad. He says the exact words that Moses says he will say. And, and not only that, but as he's walking the streets of Jerusalem at the end of his journey, it's the appointed day for them to open the scrolls. They open the scrolls, and what is the prophecy? What are they reading? It's the prophecy that the stranger shall come to the land mm. on that day. And that's the kind of stuff that you've uncovered. Why have you been able to see this stuff 
and others haven't. It's hard to explain that, except that it just comes. You know, like 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 a harbinger. I'm standing at ground yeah. zero, and something says you have. There's a, there's something here you have to find, and that's it. Just unfolds. You know, same thing with the Oracle. Mm. Except harbinger was about two months of download or that happening. <laughs> this is about a year and a half. I had three thousand pages. I said, how do I get that into a, a smaller <laughs> book? But yeah, I'll give you an example that'll lead to Donald Trump. Okay. okay? <laughs> you know, and all right. One is the Six Day War. Okay. All these events happen on these jubilee years, 1917. The Jewish people are restored. The land is given, pledged back to them. In the Balfour yeah, Agreement. Yeah, 50 years later, 1967, Jerusalem. Well, now, now to, to our president. Okay, we get to 2017. That's the next jubilee year. So what happens? You have this, 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 this resolution of restoration. Donald Trump. You know, you've heard about Cyrus yeah. and Trump. Well, there's something to it. And the thing is this. There was a king who issued this declaration concerning Jerusalem. That was Cyrus, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah. Well, Trump is the only one who has done it in the same way, and the declaration actually parallels Cyrus's thing. But the, the, it says in the Bible, the king will do this after 70 years, after 70 years. So could Trump have done it after a 70-year thing? Well, if you go back 70 years from 2017, it takes it to 1947, the year that Israel's voted back into the existence. The, it ends with Trump's resolution, okay? And on the Hebrew calendar, the day that they voted Israel, the 70-year start, it ends, Donald Trump, it points to a day, it's the day, it's December 6, 2017, the exact day that Donald Trump issued the declaration. 70 wow. years to the day. I would say that's <laughs> worth a read, don't you think? I mean, come on. And with all of Jonathan Kahn's books, one of the things I've always said is, you'll say, oh, that's just not possible. All I would say is read it, look at his sources, and come to your own conclusions. You'll be hard-pressed to argue. What an incredible, incredible story. The Oracle is available right now at booksellers everywhere, as well as online. You can also go to theoraclemystery.com. And if you want to learn more about Hope for the World Ministries, visit hopeoftheworld.org. You can follow Jonathan Kahn on social media for more of his timely insights into the ancient scripture. Now, Keith Bilbury, I want you to just go ahead and be our oracle tonight. You are every week, but see if you can predict what's coming up on the show. Hmm. Well, tonight, the winner of the voice, Jake Hoot, performs right here on Huckabee. Go to MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow Gov Mike Huckabee on Twitter. Welcome back. Hey, how about a hand of applause for Trey Corley and the Music City Connection, would you? Yeah. Well, my next guest is the latest winner of The Voice. He was on Kelly Clarkson's team. His genuine, real-life story and powerful singing voice made instant fans all over the country. Now, if you haven't seen the moment that his dreams came true, take a look. The winner of The Voice is... Jake Hoot! Hey, I tell you, that's pretty awesome. Would you please welcome Tennessee's own Jake Hoot. Welcome, Jake. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. 
Honestly, I think Kelly was more excited than you were. Yeah, I, I still don't know what happened in that moment. But yeah, she was, <laughs> she was sitting on the edge of her seat for sure. That must have been an extraordinary moment for your life. Yes, sir. I mean, coming from, you know, starting off, I was very skeptical about it from the get-go. Uh, and then every step of the way, I kept telling everybody, oh, I'll be home next week, you know, I'm not going to make it past. <laughs> yeah. um, and then even there, you know, watching it, like, I bumped Ricky and I said, you got this. I thought anybody but me. And so to hear my name was just unreal. Well, I'm sure glad you are the guy. And how did you get into The Voice? Did someone tell you, hey, you ought to try out for that? Um, I had, I had done an open call for American Idol years ago and just kind of got burnt out on it and didn't like it. And then they actually had reached out to me and asked me to come out. Uh, the voice did. They asked uh -huh. me to come out and audition. And, um, at that point I thought, well, first I thought it was fake and I was like, surely they're not reaching out to me. But, um, but then, you know, I thought, well, what, what, what is there to lose? Like, I'll give it my best shot. And the next thing I know I'm, I'm out there. Wow. So, I mean, it must've been surreal though, to go through all these levels of competition. And then when you get named, I mean, that just opens the door for your career as a singer. Absolutely, yeah, and God's been very good. And I mean, I, I met so many incredible people on the journey out there. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, the doors that have opened since then, is just, it's, it's just been incredible. You had, uh, not that long ago, your very first performance at the Grand Ole Opry. I want you to tell me what that was like. Now, Keith Bilbrey's longtime announcer of the Grand Ole Opry's seen a lot of folks come for their first time. I want you to describe what that was like. I am still trying to, you know, come down off the high of that. It, it was unreal. Um, I had such high expectations. I, I tell people, you know, they ask me, is playing the Grand Ole Opry at the top of your bucket list? And I said, that was the list. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I, now that I've played it, I don't know what to do, you know, but... Uh, but the I Huckabee said, Show. Exactly. There you go, that, exactly. I'm, yeah. I'm helping you out here, yes, Jake. Well, thank you. You yes, say sir. the Huckabee Show, playing this... Yes, sir, that even, was the next thing. Wow, yes, sir, absolutely. it's right up there with the Opry. <laughs> I know it is, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it just, you know, I set such a high expectation for it because, I mean, yeah. that was just, you know and it exceeded it by leaps and bounds. And just to see the support from, you know, all my, you know, my family and friends and everybody from Tennessee that came out and just were, were there and supporting, it was just unreal. You know, I, I was reading about how many downloads you've had on iTunes, how many people have bought your music since that appearance on The Voice. Jake, you've got something special, you really do. And uh, it's such an honor and privilege for us to be here in this early part of your career and encourage you and tell you, we want you to go to absolutely to the top and stay there. Oh, I hope you, you will. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Jake Hoop. Now you can get more of Jake's music on iTunes or go to jakehoop.com where you can also find his tour schedule and a whole lot more. Now after the show, go to huckabee.tv for Jake's exclusive performance of This Ain't My Truck. But after the break, Jake Hoot is going to perform the song that won him the voice. And guess what? I'm going to join in on bass whether Jake likes it or not. So don't go away. Now, here to perform Better Off Without You with the Governor on Bass is Jake Hoot. Man, this loneliness tearing me apart. I wonder what's holding together this broken heart. 
sight from sound and I can see the thunder and hear the dog and it's plain to see I'm better off without you strange to think how much I've allowed you to make Say